Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. I hope everybody is having a happy holiday season. Christmas may have come and gone, but I have one last present for you, an interview with Dr. Jeff Ramsey, an academic advisor at a Midwestern college and an instructor for Southern New Hampshire University. In this episode, we talk about his background, his academic research into the Big Ten Athletic Conference's response to the federal government's Title IX regulations, and the balance he has found between teaching and administration in higher education. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, My name is Jeff Ramsey. Um, I am the director of academic advising um, at a online school or an online college. Um, I'm also part of this podcast. I I was invited because I'm an adjunct instructor at SNHU um, teaching in the history uh, history area. So looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. And we'll talk a bit more about the uh, about what you do um, in your day job and then also what advice you have for students that are going out into the job market. But first, let's talk a little bit about your your background, your academic professional background. What have you what have you done with your life so far? Yep, absolutely. So um, I'll I'll kind of back up um, all the way to high school, truthfully. I mean, I know that's a long ways away, and I'll try not to be too long-winded, but um, when I was in high school, I had a uh, high school history, U.S. history teacher that I I absolutely loved. He was really dynamic. He really got me interested in in history as um, something to study. And so um, when I went to college, I went to a school called Lawrence University. It's a private school in um, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, decided that I would major in history. I kind of had a brief flirtation with philosophy, uh, but I stuck with history um, as my as my degree field. And, um, you know, U.S. history was kind of the way that I wanted to go. And um, one of the things that struck me about that degree that, that I really enjoyed was that was the first. Honestly, that was kind of the first time or first exposure that I had to the idea that history is um, really all of human lived experience. When I was in high school, even though I loved my history teacher, I still sort of had the idea that probably a lot of students have as um, history, wars and politics and big names and economic, you know, just kind of the the big things, World War II and um, presidential studies and things like that. And um, my my senior, uh, the program I was in, um, I had a senior uh, thesis paper class kind of thing. And, um, and I was kind of casting about for a topic. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was kind of thinking... Great Depression, or I was thinking, you know, these kind of big concepts. And um, and my instructor, my professor at the time said, you know, do what you like, do what you're interested in. So I actually, that paper, I ended up writing on uh, sports. Sports is a love of mine, both historically and personally, and uh, wrote a paper about uh, Babe Ruth and his um, kind of connection with the 20s culture and kind of the overlap between sports and culture at that time. And so it was really kind of the first notion that I had that I could, I could actually make a career out of um, studying something that I loved and not not kind of forcing myself into talking about the great presidents and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, so anyway, so I, I finished that degree um, and I was and I was I would imagine that a number of history students, um, at least this was my mindset at the time, and it might be others that um, and I got this question frequently from friends and family. Oh, you're a history major, so you're going to be a high school teacher, right? <laughs> that was the that was my mindset. Like, all right, this is what what I would do, and I and I really didn't have much interest in being a teacher, to be perfectly honest, uh, at least at that high school level. Um, and so then my other option was, well, I'll go to law school. Well, I didn't really want to do that either. So uh, what I really ended up doing actually was um, going into higher education. So I went into a variety of different places um, over the next oh gosh, probably ten years or so. 
Um, I worked in higher ed. I worked in student activities. I worked in orient, student orientation. Uh, I worked in community service, kind of helping students connect with community service opportunities. So kind of more of the student, student affairs, student activity side of the house, um, getting away from the academic piece. Um, and, and as I was going through that, I, I realized that I liked it. It was fun. I enjoyed working with students, um, but I missed the academic side. I would be in my office and I'd be doing whatever I was doing and a student would come in and they'd be with, you know, maybe a couple of students would come into the office and I'd overhear them talking about what they were doing in class. And I was like, gosh, I really kind of miss that intellectual give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to say pause, but I sort of paused my, my um, student affairs side of the house. And I ended up going uh, back. I got a master's in, in, um, in history uh, from the University of Northern Iowa. Um, and that, uh, that paper as well was sport related. I did a paper about um, also kind of cross section of sport and history. And I looked at um, Joe Namath and kind of his, his uh, interaction with the, and, and football's kind of back and forth interaction with the, um, uh, with the 1960s and how that, um, those kind of things interplayed in terms of his Namath style and then how that kind of connected with the 1960s uh, mindset and the 1960s culture. Uh, and then went on to, to get my PhD at Marquette, um, working in, um, you know, U.S. history. I, I worked, uh, again, um, the, the, the kind of theme continued where I uh, ended up doing a paper, doing my dissertation on um, Title IX um, and the growth of women's sports in the Big Ten um, and doing uh, kind of focusing on that, um, that moment in time and thinking about the, 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 the way that um, – Again, there are a lot of crossovers. I think we maybe will get into it more in detail, but a lot of crossovers and what I was looking at with um, some of the culture and the political culture of the of the 1970s and 1980s, sort of the blowback from the 60s and kind of the uh, the conservative rise of conservatism and and all of that um, was going on at that time, and uh, the the development of Title IX and the growth there was um, kind of connected to that. Um, and so then I, you know, I got I got my PhD. I looked around for teaching jobs. I adjuncted a little bit. Um, there wasn't really, I didn't really find anything that was quite the right fit in terms of a tenure track job. There were some opportunities that I applied for, some that I um, was able to do some some phone interviews with, and it just, you know, never quite was the right um, fit for me or for the institutions that I was interviewing for. So um, ended up then um, getting the job that I currently have where I'm uh, working in academic advising. So I'm, uh, in my mind, I'm uh, the role I have is kind of a, a, a sort of a middle ground between the two things I've done in my life thus far, the student affairs, student support side, but then the academic side. So I'm, I'm working in my role. I'm kind of doing some of both. I have really close relationships with the academic side of the house, but I'm also working with students and I'm kind of in that middle ground where I can, I can use my academic loves, but I can also use kind of my student support um, experience as well. And so it's been, uh, it's been a really good fit for me. And, and, um, you know, the online world is educational world is not something I had uh, anticipated getting into, but I've enjoyed that as well. And I think that's uh, obviously kind of the wave of the future. And when I was in college, my very first uh, freshman class, I um, the professor told me to email him the uh, rough draft of my first paper. And uh, this was at a time where I didn't even know what email was. And now I'm working <laughs> in online school. So that was 20 years ago and or, you know, 24 years ago now that um, shows how much the world has changed and especially in education. So. Um, I guess that's kind of my story. That's great. 
And uh, we need to back up a little bit because I graduate, I got my PhD from Ohio State. Um, and okay. so we have to talk about the whole Big Ten thing a little bit here. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. contractually obligated to talk about That's the Big, Big Ten. My whole family grew up in Youngstown. So we uh, are, you're talking to an Ohio State guy. So, okay. <laughs> so you said that your topic or your research for the dissertation was on Title IX and the Big Ten. Uh, yeah. So you're talking about kind of how the inter- how they how there were a lot of overlaps and intersections there. It sounds like I mean obviously you're intersecting. You've got some gender history, political history, yeah. legal history, sports history, and so uh, tell us a little bit more about that project. How did it? I mean, you, it's not, you've always had an interest in sports, so I can see where that came from. But you know, what was your um, methodology? What types of sources do you use? What were your general conclusions? You know, tell us a little bit more about your project. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually took, when I was in my master's program, um, I took a number of uh, courses, um, one, actually two courses, one in history, history related, one in one sociology that was kind of cross-listed uh, on gender and gender history. And mm-hmm. I was very fascinated. I'm still very interested in um, the, the concept and the history of uh, specifically masculinity. So thinking about, um, you know, we, we kind of, I think, have come to an understanding in at least the academic world that Gender is a social construct and um, different time periods, different societies define gender differently. And I think there's a clear indication of that for femininity. I don't know that we're fully there yet for masculinity. And so there's still kind of that underlying that, you know, men are men and, you know, that this is just how they are as opposed to we've been sort of trained to be like that. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, that that was sort of the context of going into this project. And what I originally thought and when I was originally kind of going to research for this, I knew I wanted to do Title IX. That was something that I was interested in. I knew I wanted to do, um, honestly, the Big Ten was more of a, 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 a choice of convenience than anything else because it was kind of centrally located. And it was, I got my degree at Marquette, so I knew I could get to the places as opposed to going out to California or something like that. Right. Um, but originally my idea was, okay, so here's Title IX. We've got all these women's sports programs that are getting started. How did the male athletes react? So was this, you know, did they see this as an affront to their masculinity? Like sports Mm -hmm. is my domain. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want women to be part of that. I didn't, you know, so I, that was my original intent. Um, And and honestly, when I got to my first, I meant it very clearly, uh, the first archive that I went to. And so I went to to the, all 10 schools at the time, there were 10 schools. Um, I went to all 10 schools archives. And as I started digging through, Illinois was the first place I went. And as I started digging through, uh, looking at the sources, looking at the documentation that I, I had um, and pulling things, I realized that that was going to be that that idea of how did the male athletes react and what was their response was going to be really difficult to get at. There wasn't a lot of documentation there. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot that I could pull. Like I found a couple of like op ed articles and student papers. I found a couple of things that you know, kind of suggested uh, the way that people reacted. But I, I quickly realized, I talked to my dissertation advisor after I got done with that first trip and was like, I don't know if this is going to work because I just, I really, I literally couldn't find the kind of material that I, that I thought I would have needed to make any kind of conclusion one way or another about, you know, how Joe Blow on the football team reacted to Jane, you know, Jane Smith, James Smith's volleyball team. Right. So, right. So what I stumbled into really, and this I think became even more fascinating to me, what I stumbled into was uh, what the documentation that was there was official university memoranda and letters. And so it was really a fascinating kind of topic to look at. So I kind of switched from how did the athletes respond to how did the administration respond? So mm-hmm. looking at letters, um, memos um, with, with from uh, the, so the, the athletic directors, the coaches, 
um, camp, you know, university presidents, vice presidents, you know, kind of the, the upper leadership as they're trying to make sense of this new law and how it was going to be implemented um, and lots of back and forth between them and the government. Um, so I think what a lot of people don't realize about Title IX is the legislation itself is is simple. It's, it's you know, a paragraph. Maybe it's, you know, again, I haven't counted the words, but 30 or right. 40 or 50 words maybe. Um, just saying you can't discriminate on the basis of gender in any, um, you know, any university or any school, not just university, but school-related activity. And it, it applied to sports. That's what people kind of knew it as initially, but it applied to student organizations. Fraternities and sororities had to kind of work through what that meant for them and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. what really became fascinating is that the government, um, the U.S. government at that point, the Department of Health and Education, um, created a list of guidelines. Like, all right, here's the, you know, and I think this is how it is with any legislation, right? That here's this simple piece of legislation. All right, now how are we going to actually enforce it? And so they created this whole list of here's how you're going to do this and here's what it's going to look like. And, you know, looking at different, um, you know, one of the, the tests that they used was were you, uh, the percentage, I think, was the one where, where people got kind of up in arms is, all right, you have to have the same number of spots for female athletes as you do for male athletes. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have to show that you're making progress and, you know, all of these different things that, that really just kind of um, took took the administrations by storm, essentially, and trying to figure out how to make, make this work. And, um, you know, really what it came down to, there was a couple of big conclusions that I drew uh, from what I was looking at. Um, one of which I think is is maybe you you would you thought about it would would make sense is that um, there was there was really even though the Big Ten is an you know an organization it's they, they all work together they all talk to each other um, each school approached it differently and this is sort of the obvious conclusion that the schools that resisted the hardest were the Michigan's Ohio states that had the big football programs mm. and were worried that this was going to somehow impact that right I've got a hundred you know, at that time, it was probably 120. They didn't have scholarship limits at that time. So 120 guys on the football team. And where am I going to find that many spots for women's sports that, you know, basically were not completely non-existent at the time, but but minimal. They were almost like club teams in most cases. Right. Um, all the way to the other side where you've got schools like Indiana, Northwestern that were, uh, you know, their, their football wasn't driving the engine. And so they were a lot more open, I found, um, to making that happen. And like, let's, let's, let's work with this system. Let's, let's bring our women's sports along uh, much more quickly. So it was, you know, you kind of had that dichotomy um, within the different schools in the big 10. But the other thing that I, that I found that I wasn't anticipating that I really thought was fascinating was that the way that they, that the schools that resisted, even the Michigans and the Ohio States that were just really adamantly against anything um, in regards to this, um, the way that they resisted was almost identical to the way that other white conservative male resistance, not always male, but resistance to any other kind of civil rights that was happening. So the, mm-hmm. the analogy that drew is um, busing when that when when uh, we were attempting or when the, the governments and the different states were attempting to achieve desegregation through a busing system and you had white families up in arms saying, no, we can't bus. And their, their rhetoric was, um, and I think it became known in history circles as rights-based rhetoric. I'm Mm -hmm. not racist. I'm not against equality. I just don't, I think you are violating my rights by telling me that I've got to bus my kids somewhere else. So kind of couching, couching a very, uh, couching kind of a racist ideology or a 
maybe not racist, but kind of discriminatory ideology under a, you know, it's not that I don't like other people. It's that you're just infringing on my rights. And the, the Big Ten schools were making the exact same argument. It's not that we don't want women's sports. It's not that we don't, you know, it's not that we're discriminatory. It's not that we, you know, are, are sexist. We just, you, you, government just can't tell us how to do things. Like this is our mm-hmm. department. We know how to run things. You can't tell us how to do that. So it was just really interesting to, to see that. And, and in some cases, the schools, you know, I, as I dug into it, based on what I found, some of that was legitimate. Some of the schools, you see a history of active support for women's sports, active support for gender equality. And then, you know, this, this legislation came in and all the rules that the government was setting up, it seemed legitimate. Like, all right, hey, yeah, this is, this really is just difficult for us to work through. You got to give us some, some latitude here. Then you also saw the other side where it very clearly there was gender discrimination. There was sexism going on at those levels. And they were kind of trying to hide that behind, well, you can't tell us how to run our lives. Um, so it really, I think, is the, you know, in this era is that beginning, right, of the, the conservative movement where, you know, that blowback from the 60s where you have the 70s, 80s, you got Reagan coming in in the 80s, where you have that kind of notion of, okay, we've, we've gone way too far left. Now as a country, we're shifting back right. And this this moment, the the gender, uh, you know, the Title IX moment was right in that time frame, and they were using the exact same language, using the exact same rhetoric to uh, fight against Title IX as you know anti ERA protesters, anti busing, all of those different kinds of kind of big picture type things that were happening at this same time frame were um, you know the the Big Ten leadership ADs and presidents and whatnot were using the exact same idea. We're not sexist. We're not racist. We, you know, we, we believe in equality, but the government can't tell us what to do. And that and that's really what it boiled down to. So it became a real fascinating process project from that standpoint. Yeah, that I mean, that brings up a whole lot of questions that I'm trying to uh, figure out how to try to prioritize. But um, it, it's I mean, first off, you know, an initial thought is that that's, it's really interesting to think about the major big some of the Big Ten schools as being as participating in that conservative movement, like you're talking about, because, you know, there's always the cliche that, you know, the universities are all the egghead liberal elites and all of that. It's interesting to hear that at least some parts of the university, and and again, you don't want to extrapolate and take the football program to apply to the entire university, but there were, that's a pretty important constituency within the university, especially at a big 10 school like Ohio state or Michigan. And that, so it's, it's interesting that that kind of, tweaks the the liberal stereotype that's put on universities because that's not really the case um right well and the interesting sorry to jump in but the interesting thing about it is that i when i started getting into the research i i felt the same way but in my mind i was sort of compartmentalizing i was saying okay you know even though universities kind of have that liberal uh, there's the the view the stereotype that that universities are liberal Mm -hmm. i kind of said okay well Maybe universities are, but athletic departments maybe aren't, like kind of putting that, kind of separating the two. But what I found really interesting is that I I wasn't just looking at athletic archives. I wasn't just looking at something that the AD or the football coach wrote. And and to be quite honest, most of the, the, I shouldn't say most of, but where where I found most of the the sexism and gender and misogyny and all that came from that side of the house, um, right? But But it was it wasn't just them that was espousing that that same kind of rights-based rhetoric. It was the university presidents. It was the university leadership. It was, you know, VPs of administration and, v, you know, the, the academic side of the house that was kind of, everybody was sort of involved in this back and forth with the government. 
And so it really, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, it kind of went against that stereotype of, of, um, you know, universities being kind of a liberal bastion of, of in, in maybe some conservative type states. Um, university presidents were right alongside. Now they were, you know, in their role, they certainly couldn't afford to be really overt about, about gender, um, you know, gender stereotypes or things like that. And, mm-hmm. and, and to be honest, like, to be fair, I mean, it's not like I talked to any of them. So, you know, they, they probably were open to, 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 to you know, and supportive of, of equality. Uh, but in the way that they talked about Title IX specifically and the way that they communicated with the government, it was very clearly in that same conservative idea of we're not we're not sexist, but you can't tell us what to do. And, and, and yeah, so it's it is it was very fascinating. It would be interesting. Uh, and you, I, I completely understand you were talking about when you're looking at the student perspective, there just wasn't much there. And I can totally understand that. It would be mm-hmm. curious to see if there had been adequate sources, what how you would compare the students versus the administration, because administration administrators, I mean, these are usually much older guys, obviously. And so it would be kind of interesting to see where or if there was kind of a generational difference between the administration and the students, because if the students are coming of age at the time of the ERA and all of that, it'd be interesting to see if the students, you know, again, you don't want to lump all students into one bucket, but if on average, if the students were a bit more liberal on Title IX versus some of the administrators who were looking, who were kind of trying to hold on to the old ways of doing things, or if there was similarity there. I know that, you know, there's another stereotype that we don't want to buy too much into, but there's a stereotype that, you know, sports is kind of a conservative institution just in general. And so, uh, like you were saying before, the manliness in sports is being, is, is an important part of sports and all of that. So, but it would be interesting to to know. And and yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how you would demonstrate that since like you say, sources are probably few and far between, but it would be an interesting kind of development to see happening. Well, one of the, one of the things on on that note that I, uh, I I kind of thought about it two different ways in the, the, when you were talking and the question you were asking is that I think initially when it came in and when, when all of this negotiation was happening, I would, I would presume, and this is totally a guess. I, again, I don't have any sources, but mm-hmm. um, chances are uh, you had um, male athletes probably kind of buying into what their coaches were saying. So maybe they didn't even like know much about it, but okay, you know, hey, it's it's this is what's happening, and don't worry, it's not going to affect you. And you know, again, at, at schools like that, I I would presume that they're spending most of their time trying to practice and be prepared to, for the games and things like that. So. You know, there, there's sort of was maybe a, I'm not going to worry about it until I have to worry about it. Um, my my research focused on basically the initial 10 